guide and direct our thoughts and minds as we look together at your word now. For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18, the glory of the new covenant. I wonder what your idea is of Old Testament worship. What kind of worship was it that was carried on? First of all, in the tabernacle, the worship tent uh, used by the Israelites in the wilderness, and then from the days of Solomon in the Jerusalem temple. I wonder if you think it was a bit like choral evensong in Gloucester Cathedral with uh, psalms set to an Anglican chant, or a charismatic rave-up at your favourite Happy Clappy Church, Sunday at six at St David's Morton in Marsh, or none of the above. In fact, as far as I can see, the worship in the tabernacle and the temple must have been rather like a Salvation Army band playing in an abattoir. Musical instruments, to be sure, um, mingling with the cries of animals being slaughtered, carcasses being chopped up, and blood being sprinkled. And I think that if our two curates had been trainee ministers in Old Testament times, the training they would have received would have been not so much how to conduct weddings, funerals, and baptisms, but rather the gentle art of butchery, how to kill animals brought for sacrifice, how to cut up the meat, and what to do with the blood. And if you find the thought of that rather distasteful, then be grateful that we live under the new covenant, the law, uh, and not under the old covenant, the law of Moses. Here we are under the new covenant, the age of the Spirit inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his one sacrifice once offered once and for all. And this passage from 2 Corinthians 3 has as its title the glory of the new covenant. And if, as we look at the, these verses in detail, you think it all sounds a bit involved and obscure, then look at the last verse, verse 18, which reveals God's grand purpose for you and me and everyone who has faith in Christ, namely that we shall be transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory. There's a prospect to amaze and to thrill us. These verses depend heavily on a passage in Exodus 34. You'll remember that at one stage in the uh, Israelite journey of 40 years in the wilderness, Moses went up Mount Sinai and stayed so long that the people became restless. They persuaded Aaron to make a golden calf and began to worship it with pagan revelry. 
Moses came down the mountain incandescent with fury and threw down and broke the two stone tablets of the law which he'd received from God on the mountain. Later, Moses was summoned to go up the mountain again with another two stone tablets and he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights and received the Ten Commandments again. And when he came down, he was not aware that his face was radiant because of his communing with the Lord. Aaron and the Israelites were afraid to approach him until Moses called them to him. And we're told that when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil. And on leaving the Lord's presence to tell the Israelites what the Lord had said, they saw the radiance of his face. And he would again put the veil back on so that they wouldn't see that it was beginning to fade. In our passage from 2 Corinthians 3, there are two references to this incident. First of all, verse 7, and then verse 13. And we can conveniently divide the passage into two sections. First of all, verses 7 to 11, which we can call the glory of the gospel. Corinth was the most troublesome of the churches with which Paul had dealings, and some of his problems arose from people who were putting themselves forward as apostles in opposition to him and making inflated claims for themselves. It might well be that some of them were emphasizing their Jewish connections and hankering after the old Jewish ways of doing things, the old sacrificial system. But be that as it may, Paul in these verses is highlighting the glorious character of the gospel message he'd been entrusted with. And in so doing, he, he brings encouragement to everyone in any age who is, who is engaged in Christian ministry. In verse 6, he describes himself as his colleagues as ministers of a new covenant and goes on to contrast the new covenant with the one which went before. And I want to point out to you four contrasts which the apostle draws between the two covenants as he tells us about God's new way of dealing with sinful men and women. So firstly, the gospel, the new covenant, is not external, but internal. In verse 6, Paul writes, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. In Old Testament times, particularly at Mount Sinai, God gave his people a written law code to observe. Laws were written on actual solid slabs of stone and were external 
in the sense of standing outside the individual person and saying just you shall do this and you shall not do that but Jeremiah had foretold a day when God would put his law within people and write it on their hearts and Jesus indicated that the fulfillment of that prophecy was at hand when he said at the Last Supper this cup is the new covenant in my blood but what does it mean to say that the new covenant is internal and not external it means that God works inwardly on you or me through the Holy Spirit so that so that we are given the divine ability to do his will the working of God's Holy Spirit may be gradual it may meet with resistance from our self-centered sinful natures but bit by bit the work is being done I don't know about you but for myself I find the battleground is in the will and at times I have to pray Lord make me willing to do your will and at other times Lord make me willing to be willing to do your will so firstly the gospel is internal and not external the new covenant is written not on stone tablets but on human hearts and wills then secondly the new covenant is not temporary but permanent the old covenant with its tablets of stone and animal sacrifices was temporary it was a stopgap when Moses communed with the Lord on Mount Sinai the skin of his face had a radiance about it something supernatural yet this radiance faded after a time verse 7 as the brightness of Moses face came to an end so did the old covenant and that way of dealing uh, with with mankind was succeeded by a new permanent one one that was inaugurated by the death of Jesus on the cross and the permanence of the new as opposed to the old is referred to in verse 11 if what was fading away came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts so the new covenant is internal not external it is permanent not temporary and thirdly the new covenant imparts to us not condemnation but righteousness see verse 9 if the ministry that condemns men is glorious how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness the old covenant the law of Moses could only condemn what does that mean you ask well take the example of stealing the law says you shall not steal and it does so in order to make people aware that they are sinners and that stealing is a breach of God's law the law points out men's faults and lets them know beyond a shadow of doubt 
that they are sinners. But what the law cannot do is to provide a remedy. The law makes demands and lays down penalties for disobedience, nothing more. No wonder Paul describes it as a ministry that condemns men. But in total contrast, the gospel, the new covenant, is a ministry that brings righteousness, for it makes it possible for Christ's righteousness to be available to guilty sinners. It, it means that you and I, through faith in Christ, can stand before a holy God, faultless, guiltless, without a stain on our character. Not because we are in any way worthy, but only because of the worthiness, the righteousness, and the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died as the sinless Lamb of God, for sins not his own, and was raised to life again. It is his righteousness and his alone that we claim. And the fourth contrast between the two covenants comes first in the passage. The new covenant, the gospel, produces not death, but life. Verse 6 says... The letter kills, in other words, the, um, uh, the, the law uh, as an external standard. The, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And to go on with verses 7 and 8 in a shortened form, if the ministry that brought death came with glory, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious. The law of Moses makes it clear that all are sinners and therefore exposed to the penalty of death. But the gospel brings new hope and new life through the Holy Spirit. And the heart of the gospel is the staggering message that God loves us, his creatures, wayward, ungrateful, and rebellious though we are, and thought us worth rescuing, even at the tremendous cost of the agonizing death of his dear son Jesus on the cross. After Jesus had died and been raised to life again, he sent the Holy Spirit to make these truths real to his people and give them new hope and new life. The wages of sin is death, wrote Paul in Romans, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in this series of contrasts, Paul brings out the surpassing glory of the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ, compared with what had gone before. It's not external, but internal. It's not temporary, but permanent. It ministers not condemnation, but righteousness, and it leads not to death, but to life through the life-giving Spirit. The second major division of the passage is found in verses 12 to 18, 
which I shall deal with much more briefly, you'll be glad to hear. We could entitle it Turning and Transformation. In these verses, Paul is making a link between the Israelites of old who were unable to see the, the radiance of Moses' face because of the veil he wore and the people of his own day whose minds were made dull and unable to respond when the old covenant was being read. It was when uh, the Old Testament was being read, a veil lay over their minds and the only way of removing that veil was by preaching Christ so that people could see in him all the promises of, of, uh, 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 of the old covenant being fulfilled. And therefore the age of the new covenant had come. Paul refers to this when he says in verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It is in the light of Christ that we gain a true understanding of the rites and ceremonies of the Old Covenant and of the lives of those great servants of God, such as Joseph or David or Jeremiah, who in some measure foreshadowed Jesus. In verse 12, Paul spoke of the boldness with which he and his colleagues went about their ministry. And in verse 17, he referred to the freedom they experienced, a freedom coming from the Spirit of the Lord. Paul felt that ministers of the gospel, the new covenant, can be bolder than Moses was able to be. Even though Moses removed his veil when in the presence of God, as though to recharge his batteries, yet in the presence of his fellow Israelites, he put the veil back on. And at the beginning of verse 18, Paul says, Moses before God with unveiled face is like us. We, ministers of the new covenant, sinners though we are, with unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. What a wonderful privilege it is for any Christian to be called to be a minister of the new covenant, a minister of the gospel. What a joy it is to see a veil being removed from this person and that, whether gradually or suddenly, to see spiritual eyes being opened to the wonder of the gospel. I was talking on the phone this afternoon to a friend from our last parish in Essex and she was talking about the house group to which she belongs, a house group that I once led many moons ago, and she was talking about a lady who has um, in recent years started going to that group and she was saying it is wonderful to see how Elna uh, has been coming alive lately. It's a, it's a great joy to them to that group and it's a great joy to me having known Elna for 14 years um, and to see and to think and to hear of how she is growing in the Lord. I want to speak for a moment to the younger members of the congregation this evening, people with their lives and careers before them.
Some of you, no doubt, have plans for your future. Maybe you have everything mapped out in your minds for the next 50 years. Well, uh, you need to be aware that those plans may not always come to fruition. Others will still be uncertain as to what to do with their lives. Some will have had disappointments and find it difficult to know uh, what the way forward might be. But let me ask you to consider seriously whether the Lord might be calling you to be a minister of the gospel. Maybe, but not necessarily, to the ordained ministry, but to some form of full-time Christian ministry. If you at any time feel that call, then let me urge you to follow it up, to seek advice from senior Christians, and count it a great privilege. If the Lord really is calling you in that direction, he won't let you go until you say, yes, Lord, and you will find great satisfaction and blessing in what you do for him. If I may add a note of autobiography, my first four working years were spent in the teaching profession. I was teaching Latin, would you believe? And though I had and still do have a great liking for the Latin language, I came to feel that having to teach people about the galaxy of Roman gods and goddesses and their complicated love lives was a waste of time. I had something and someone far better and far worthier to talk about. And that was one of the factors which led me to seek ordination in the Church of England. I might also add that I asked a senior Anglican layman if he would give me a reference when I was seeking ordination, which he did. And a couple of years after I'd been ordained, he said to me, I see they let you in in spite of my reference. And I was never sure whether he was joking or not. Turning and transformation. In conclusion, let's look again at verse 18, where Paul says that we are being transformed into the Lord's likeness with ever-increasing glory. This is God's great purpose, to create in people like you and me, with all our faults and failings, the likeness of Christ. The word translated transformed here is used in three other places in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the other two references are in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, the accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus, where the writers say he was transfigured before them. The three disciples who were with Jesus on that momentous occasion were privileged to have a glimpse of the divine glory which Jesus had as the second person of the Holy Trinity and which he had voluntarily laid aside at his incarnation. How amazing that such glory should be God's purpose for each of us, his people. 
So we need to allow the Lord, who is the Spirit, to guide and influence us day by day, to make us more and more sensitive to the sin that is in us, and more and more sensitive to the voice of the Lord, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let us pray that God's grand and astounding purpose for each of our lives uh, may come into fulfillment in his good time and in his own way as we reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, amazing prospect and privilege. Please help us in, in our own circumstances to begin to reflect that glory, to know the transforming, transfiguring power of your Holy Spirit in our lives until we see you face to face. Amen.